Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times, doing another off-season cast here. We've got some Hokies news and notes. Uh, we'll go through our over-unders uh, from last season and uh, see how we did on those, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the NFL draft um, the Hokie connections there. And also a little bit of NFL. Andy, I, I know you're a happy man right now. It's It's been several days, but your Minnesota Vikings pulled off the miracle of miracles. I, I'm curious, what was that like for you as a Minnesota fan to sit there and see that unfold? Uh, I was sort of in shock. Uh, you know, like you see the videos of people jumping around, they're screaming and yelling and stuff like that. I didn't react like that. I was just like sort of silently like that just happened. Uh, you know, the, the Minnesota Vikings history is just, you know, they're like uh, an abused pet. Like you just have they cower in the corner anytime something starts to go wrong in the playoffs, because every time something bad happens in the playoffs, it happens to them, not for them. Uh, you know, I was the way that game was unfolding, I just saw it. I saw the roadmap of how you lose a game like that. They got a little, uh, you know, you know, conservative offensively. Keenum threw a terrible interception. Uh, I can't. They had a punt block. I mean, a punt block in the NFL. Nobody blocks punts in the NFL. That's like strictly a college thing. And somehow the Vikings have a punt block. I'm sitting there and I had like a whole tweet prepared. I'm like, you have to hand it to the Vikings. They come up with new and inventive ways to lose in the playoffs. They're the David Bowie of, of playoff teams. Like they're always, you know, recreating themselves. Um, you know, the, New Orleans goes ahead. The Vikings hit the field goal, which they never hit the field goal to go ahead. Like that's you know, their history of field goals with Gary Anderson and Blair Walsh. It's just not a good history of, of field goals for them in the playoffs. They hit the 53-yard field goal. I'm like, oh, that was pretty good. And then you look at the clock, and there's like a minute 40 left to get with Drew Brees on the other side. You're like, that's an eternity. There's like, I was still, there's no way they're going to win this game. And sure enough, New Orleans comes down and kicks the field goal. And I'm so dejected. I'm just like, ah, another early exit. You know, I thought I, this team wasn't great, but I just, it, there's something about them the way they've played and kind of fought through stuff. I feel like they had a chance this year. Uh, and then it gets down to that third down with 10 seconds left, and I didn't think it was going to happen. Like, there's just no chance. That never happens in the NFL. And I'm sitting there looking at my Twitter feed, because I do that when I'm watching the games. And, and normally I'm the one on the opposite side of spoiling things that are going to happen on TV. Right. And I hear about it all the time in Hokies games. Like, oh, when you stop tweeting, you you let everybody know what happens. I'm like, I, I can't help the fact that it's on a 10-second delay or whatever it is to get it on the TV channel. And I'm sitting there looking at my Twitter feed, and all of a sudden I see somebody's tweets, oh my. And then like the next one is like, are you kidding? And I'm like, wait, wait, what's going on here? And then I see it unfold on the television, and I was just like silent shock. Like I could not believe that happened. Um, you know, my first instinct is like, get out of bounds kick the, you know, so they can kick the field goal. It's like, no, score. There's nobody in front of you. Score. Uh, and like everybody's like, oh, did you – my daughter was asleep upstairs because this was like – eight o'clock, nine o'clock, whatever time it was. And they're like, Oh, you must've woken up the house. I'm like, I didn't, I was honestly just like, did that just happen? Like, am I dreaming that that just happened? I mean, it, that's not, not only to get the play like that, but to have the defensive gaff that allowed the touchdown. I mean, that's like a million to one shot there that the team actually wins in that situation. So I, I just, I don't know. I was amazed that it happened. You know what my first thought was, and this probably goes to my cynicism of instant replay, but I was like, somehow this is coming back. Or, you know, he oh, might I was just, waiting for the flag out of or bounds, something. Yeah. Or that's not a legal catch somehow, you know, because he went out of bounds and then came back in or something. I was just like, this is just not going to stand. And then my second thought was, hey, my minus 5.5 bet is back in Kick the extra point! <laughs> All I needed was them to line up and kick the extra point as per the rules. You know, there's a reason they do that. And, you know, I, I, I'm i sitting there watching, and I'm thinking, and Joe Buck is sitting there talking about how ridiculous it is that they are kicking, that they have to come back out, and good luck getting this done. And, and he never never once does he mention what the line on the game was, which is exactly why they do, they're doing what they do. I mean, the, the hypocrisy of the <laughs> NFL is staggering. You know a lot of people are watching just for that reason. And billions of dollars are, are at stake 
on this on this extra point, whether they kneel on it, which they did, or whether they try and kick it and, and make uh, make a losing bet a winner. But I'd already marked that as a loser. So I was excited for you. I was excited for Stefan Diggs. He's a Terp. That was a cool moment for him. Uh, and I was excited for a team that's really, like you said, just been kind of beaten down so many times in spots like that to get a moment like that. It was really cool. I feel like this maybe sort of like frees them up. Like I know this specific team does not have the weight of the franchise's history on it. I'm sure if you ask the players, they'd be like, no, we don't know anything about you know, four Super Bowl losses and five NFC Championship losses, anything about that. But I, I do feel the fan base is acutely aware of that. And like when you you start things start to go wrong, I feel like there is sort of that sense of dread in the stadium. I don't know if the players pick up on that, but I feel they might. Uh, I, I kind of maybe I I'm, maybe this is me just like hoping, but I'm likening this situation to the Red Sox in 2004. Was yeah. that the Super, the World Series run where? They were down three nothing to the Yankees, and everybody had given up hope. Like they needed that, just like there's no chance you'll ever do this. And then they pull it out, and then it's like, oh my gosh, they're playing with house money at this point. Like they're the Vikings are playing with house money. If they lose this week, they'll be like, well, yeah, they should have lost last week. Like no big deal. Uh, but if they win, it's like this is this is amazing. Like they just go out there and play. Like I don't care what the outcome is, really. I mean, I do, but yeah, you know, just just play. And I, I wonder if sometimes that might free them up to play a little bit better. I think to overcome some sort of just, you know, huge history of just terrible, heartbreaking losses, sometimes you need something like this to happen. Uh, so I'm hoping it happens. I don't know if it will, but uh, that'd be a nice little parallelism there with the, the World Series run by the Red Sox finally uh, after all their years of misery. Well, we'll pick those NFL games at the end of this podcast. And that sort of does – Guess who I'm going to pick. <laughs> the release – that you're talking about there with the Vikings is sort of similar to, and it's on a smaller scale, but you know, the Heinz field curse. When I saw that schedule come out this, you know, this week, uh, the Hokie schedule, I, I, you know, normally I look at that pit game and I say loss, you know, at pit loss. Uh, but since they broke that curse last year, I'm not saying that anymore. And it's similar to what you were saying. The, the players didn't, didn't care about the Hinesfield curse, but the fans did. And the media who covered this team uh, was well aware of it all those times. Let's, let's get, let's dig into that schedule a little bit. Uh, I think the first impression for most people was pretty favorable. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you look at some of the key games on that schedule and you go, well, when do you want to play Florida State? Well, it's a brand new coaching staff. You probably want to get them as early as possible. Well, they get them in the opener. And, you know, we knew that from last April. So that's nothing new, but that's still uh, pretty fortuitous timing uh, to get, you know, the Seminoles with Willie Taggart coaching his first game. There's all sorts of things you're still sorting out as a coaching staff and trying to sort of get the measure of your team and the players. So I think if you're going to play Florida State, you want to play them early. Uh, I think if you want to play Miami, you want to play them when it's cold. Uh, yeah, they get Miami on November 17th. It's probably going to be pretty cold in Blacksburg at that time of the year. Uh, you saw how the Hurricanes played last year at Pittsburgh at the end of the season uh, when they finally had to go on the road. I'm not saying they lost that game from the cold. I'm just saying it probably doesn't hurt to play a team from South Florida when it's not 70 degrees out. Uh, so they get Miami late, and then you look at Georgia Tech, you go, well, you'd like a little bit of preparation time to play for that triple option offense, and that's the one Thursday night game they have on the schedule, and they have a week and a half to prepare for that before the previous game. So uh, those three things, that seems pretty favorable. I, I feel like this lines up pretty well. Now, no team ever wins or loses just because of the schedule, but you know it's going to come down to how this team matures in the offseason, how good they become, but... Uh, yeah, I don't look at this and go, oh man, that's an egregious slight to the Hokies. Like, oh, they're making them travel here after five days rest or something like that. I, I think it sets up pretty well. Selfishly, from from a writer standpoint, I'm not these these road trips reek. I oh, mean, it's a bad yeah. And, and, they don't really have to go anywhere. I mean, North Carolina, Duke, and Pitt are there other ACC road games after Florida State. I mean. I, I think they'll fly to some of those, but it's really within a six-hour radius. I mean, yeah. th that's really easy for fans to travel to. Uh, it's not this, you know, overwhelming travel where you go up to BC and down to Miami in the same year like they did last season. You know, that works out pretty well for them. 
Yeah, I love the Pittsburgh trip, but that's a little late for it. You know, November 10th, it'll be pretty cold there in, in Yenza town. It's but. always warm in the casino, Aaron. You don't need to. That's true. I mean, come but on. You know I like walking around that city, too. It's a, it's a, all the bridges and stuff. I like. That is and, true. And, and finding their overrated sandwiches at all the different overrated sandwich shops. You don't like the uh, Primanti Brothers? I thought last time we went there that it was a good experience. It was. They had the, what was it, like the HBK sandwich yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. I thought that redeemed Primanti Brothers for me. I it thought was, it was it really was, good. It was solid. It really was. And then maybe it's just, you know, which one you go to. Maybe one one's better than the other. Who knows? Because that was one we'd never been to. Yeah. but Well, uh, I will say this. This schedule is, is kind of unique. Uh, I mean, if you look at it on the whole, the Hokies play three road games in the conference before they play a home game. Uh, their first ACC home game isn't Georgia Tech. It's Georgia Tech on October, let's see here, 25th. That's pretty late to be playing your ACC home opener. Now, they get Notre Dame before that. Uh, they have East Carolina, William & Mary at home, Old Dominion on the road. It, it's just – it's kind of strange where you start with that big marquee game. Uh, you know, Notre Dame is not till the end of the first month, and then you, you have four home games out of five to finish the season uh, in the ACC. Sort of a, a backloaded schedule at home, uh, certainly within the conference. Kind of a unique schedule in that sense. Uh, perhaps there could be a little bit better spacing with that just from a fan standpoint. So it's not every single week you're coming down there in November, but, uh, you know, if the Hokies can do well early and come on strong late, they have all those home games late in the schedule. Uh, that could be pretty advantageous. I think, especially with Miami, the game that everybody kind of looks at, I think Miami will be the pick next year in the coastal division, but I think the Hokies are probably not too far behind, uh, that could be a pretty good, pretty big game in Blacksburg uh, to have that at the end of the month and sort of when this team has been able to, to prepare for it for the whole season. I think that's a, a pretty big thing. Yeah, the flip side of that is we knew they were going to go to Florida State on Labor Day already. But you look at you know how long it would be before you actually got a chance to, to even up your record and then get a winning record in the ACC. Like you, You'd have to wait until October 13th before you could actually have a winning record should you lose that game. We know the Seminoles would probably be favored in the – in that opener, I, I think the Hokies have a good shot. Do you think there, but... Seminoles would be favored? Oh, yeah. I yeah. think so. Being at home, sure. Sure. Absolutely. I think it would be close. I don't think it would be a, a big favorite Oh, I, I'm, coming off the season I, that they had. I'm thinking close. With a new coaching yeah, staff. touchdown, something like that. Really? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, but that's that would be my prediction. Based on some a lot of the sort of preseason projections, I know these are off-season things. Hokies are sort of in the mid-teens. I've seen Florida State in the 20s in some of them. You still you still think Florida State yeah. would be favored? I think they could be favored. I would think maybe like a field goal. Okay. That would be interesting. We That's a kind of our first uh, little uh, contest there to see what, what they turn out to be favored. I, I just think the home, home field means a lot to programs like that. And I think so, too, if it was coming off a season that wasn't just a disaster for them. It was. Start to finish. But we, we all know the quarterback was hurt, uh, and, you know, what they're getting him back, right? Francois's back. They're getting him back. They lose. They lost a lot to the draft. I mean, along with the Hokies, they were one of the teams that were hurt the most. Uh, Derwin James was going to go regardless. Uh, he was a uh, top 15 pick. Uh, Josh Sweat went pro. Uh, a couple other guys on that defense, I think, went pro. So there are a lot of pieces that they're replacing, installing a new offense, new coach. I think there may be a little more question marks than Florida. I don't think instantly Florida State becomes Florida State again just because, oh, the season's over, Jimbo's gone, clean slate. I think there's a process to that uh, where it takes teams time to get better. Now, granted, they've recruited so well over the years that – uh, they could plug some of these young guys in, uh, and they could just kind of take over. Uh, they certainly have a greater capability of doing that than the Virginia Tech does, where you look at the linebackers that the Hokies have to put in there next year. They're going to be really, really young. I think that's going to be a big question mark on that defense. Uh, maybe Florida State's a little bit better than that. But, I mean, this is a team that went 7-6 and six last year. It was fortunate to get to a bowl game. Uh, there were more problems than just, hey, the quarterback got hurt in the opener. Uh, you know, things sort of fell apart team wide on that whole thing. So I, I'm curious how the Seminoles bounce back, and I'm curious how the Hokies do in that. Oh, it, it should be a really interesting opener. Let's yeah, put it that way. There may be some value in that line. You know, Florida State is a a a public team. I mean, they have been since the Bowden years. That is true. Yeah. And I so about that. I mean, you got to factor that in too when you're when you're thinking about what the line with it might be. But that you're right. I mean, all those things you mentioned could could make the Hokies a, a, a decent valuable value play in the opening weekend and you know i'm always looking for them uh news uh we, well we think 
we're not we're you know it hasn't been a hundred percent confirmed by anybody. Uh, the spokesman for Tech has said that he hasn't heard anything to the contrary. So we think <laughs> since the the uh, the deadline was the fifteenth that Nijman and Alexander are coming back, right? Uh, I believe so. Everything I've heard, they are. Uh, I didn't hear any sort of public declarations from either of them. I asked about it on Tuesday when class reconvened, and the response I got was, I haven't heard anything to the contrary. So I would assume Adonis Alexander is back. I would assume Joshua Nijman are, is back. Uh, you know, neither of them really had the junior season that you would go, oh, time to go pro. But you just look at them physically, and, you know, Adonis, a 6'3", 200-pound cornerback, a really big physical type cornerback, Nijman, a 6'7", 300-pound guy at left tackle. He was injured at the end of the season. Adonis had some suspension issues during the year. Uh, I think it makes sense that both of them came back. After losing the guys that the Hokies did with the Edmonds brothers, Tim Settle, that, that's at least some good news uh, from that sense. I mean, Nijman, it provided Kyle Chung gets his sixth year of eligibility, Nijman could be one of three seniors on that offensive line that are back. Uh, you, you could get Adonis Alexander, a cornerback, Jeremy Webb's a junior college guy uh, that came in. Uh, both of them are 6'3", between 190 and 200 pounds. I mean, those are big physical corners to have out there. Uh, and you lose a lot of experience at corner with Greg Stroman and Brandon Faison uh, graduating. I know there's some younger guys, Javon Quillen, uh, Tyree Rogers, or, or guys are going to be in the mix. But the more bodies you have there and the more athletic bodies you have like that, I think that that's going to be – that's going to serve those that cornerback group very well to have Adonis in the mix there as well. I spoke at the Roanoke Valley Sports Club on Monday night, and one of the questions that was asked of me was, you know, what's going to happen with this defense next year? I mean, how do you feel about Virginia Tech's defense? And I kind of went back to the old, well, Bud's going to find a way. Uh, I know that this, the losses are significant, but now that, that the dust has settled on all of it pretty much here, uh, we know who's back and who's not. Do you, do you feel like this defense, I mean, obviously we, I think we both think they'll take a, a, a step back from where they were this year, but – do you think it'll still be a top 25 type of defense scoring and yardage wise? That's been Bud Foster's track record. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I go back to the end of last season. I know they lose some key guys, especially in the middle of that defense. And that's where you wonder if it's going to hold up, but uh, you know, they lose Vinny Mahota and you go, Oh, well, how are they going to replace Vinny Mahota? And then how Gaines steps up and plays well. Um, they, they lose Terrell Edmonds. Oh, how are you going to, you know, after losing Diablo earlier in the season, who's going to play free safety? And then Khalil Adler comes up and he's making plays in the last couple games. Um, Mook Reynolds goes out and Dion Newsom, who, you know, fifth year guy who never really played and kind of bounced around to different positions came in and played, you know, for all things considered pretty well for how he did in those last couple games. You know, they've recruited to this system for 20 plus years now. I mean, they they recruit these guys to come in and play. When somebody leaves early, they just they go to the next guy. You know, it's cliche for these coaches to say, you know, next man up. But you know, I, I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, you know, Virginia Tech's had all sorts of guys go early, and they do a pretty good job of replacing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, D'Angelo Hall went pro, and they had a bunch of guys that that came in and uh, repl- or actually, I think that year Jimmy Williams slid over from safety. Uh, turned into a cornerback and had an All-American season eventually as a cornerback as, as the Hokies went to the Sugar Bowl. Uh, Ike Charlton went pro a couple years before that early. Uh, they had a group of, of guys uh, that came back. They, they were playing cornerback uh, in his place. Uh, Brandon Flowers goes pro. Macho Harris slides over to boundary corner. I mean, They just always have somebody sort of waiting in the wings. And even if you haven't heard of them before, uh, usually they, they do a pretty good job eventually of filling that role. So – uh, I think the concern on this defense is you lose so much experience at sort of key play calling positions in the middle with Andrew Matupuaka, Tremaine Edmonds at Mike and Backer, Terrell Edmonds at free safety. Those are sort of the quarterback positions of the defense. Uh, you know, you still have Ricky Walker, but you lose Tim Settle, who is sort of an anchor on that defensive line. I think the middle there is where you're sort of concerned about this. And uh, especially at linebacker where they've essentially lost their top five guys from the start of last season. Uh, you know, three graduated, uh, Edmonds went pro Devonte Beckett will not be back, uh, with the football team after his uh, suspension from his legal, uh, ordeal last, uh, last fall. So you're looking at, uh, sophomores and redshirt freshmen, possibly true freshmen stepping in and, and being the starters there. I think that's where the concern is on this defense. But, uh, like I say, historically, they've done a pretty good job of plugging guys in and they do pretty well. One of the, uh, Doug Dowdy was there. The, our UVA beat writer was also speaking at the sports club, and um, he was talking about Virginia and their biggest problem. And he said that uh, 
their biggest problem is recruiting. He says they're not getting anybody from Virginia. None of the good players from Virginia are coming to Virginia. Uh, he said uh, I think he had a, a fact that uh, they have as many players from Hawaii in their next recruiting class as they do from Virginia, which is crazy when you think about it. But my question in Hawaii is a suburb of uh, Giles, right? That's that's really close. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just right, across the border, right next to Pembroke. Uh, no, they. But my question to you would be. Given that, how much is that helping Virginia Tech's recruiting? The fact that it doesn't seem like Broncos making inroads at all with these local schools. Well, it's not like Virginia Tech crushed it in the state last year. Like they had six scholarship guys uh, from Virginia. Uh, you know, various sites rank guys differently. I think James Mitchell, the tight end from uh, uh, Big Stone Gap. Uh, was one of the top guys. He was maybe five or six in the composite rankings overall. So they're still not really getting those top-tier guys. Uh, that's where the Hokies have to make inroads on their recruiting is landing some of these top-flight guys in the state. But, uh, yeah, I guess it's opened up a little bit of a door. But if these guys are going to Penn State and Ohio State and Florida State and, and you know getting out of state all the top talent, I, I don't know how much Virginia Tech is necessarily capitalizing on that. Now, I, I think that could change and. Um, the more time this coaching staff has to sort of make those contacts within the state. I, I think 2019 is looking better for the Hokies than 2018. So I, I think that could change. But uh, yeah, it never hurts if your rival is struggling uh, with those recruits right in their backyard. Yeah, uh, it, it is an opportunity for the Hokies you know, to take advantage. You know who isn't struggling is Clemson. <laughs> All four of those big defensive linemen are coming back. They're That's nuts. And it's not only that Mitch Hyatt on their offensive line is coming back. I think a linebacker is coming back. The defensive line, though, is, is – I mean, first of all, Dexter Lawrence was a true sophomore last year, so he was going to be back. And you kind of look at that lineup and you go, well, they've got him to build around and then a bunch of young guys. And then Cleland Farrell and, and Austin Bryant both announced that they're coming back. And then Christian Wilkins, who I think everybody just assumed is going pro, announces he's coming back. So you have four guys that have been all Americans on the offensive line that are coming back. And, uh, you know, that defensive line sort of ate Virginia Tech's lunch in that game earlier this year, or, or last year, last fall, I should say. Uh, you know, the Hokies really couldn't get anything going. Uh, I think Austin Bryant had three sacks in that game. Dexter Lawrence, Christian Wilkins were really a handful on the interior, opening him up to make plays on the edge. Uh, now all those guys are back for another season. Uh, you figured uh, Clemson would have a, a lot of young guys coming up the ranks. K.J. Henry is a defensive end, five-star guy that signed with Clemson over Virginia Tech. Uh, in the early period here, you're like, oh, well, they'll turn to those young guys and they'll be really good. And I was like, they don't have to go to those young guys yet. That, that defense could be incredible. Uh, you know, just looking at sort of the talent right now, I don't know how you can't pick an Alabama-Clemson championship game. I mean, so, you know, stuff, weird stuff happens throughout the season all the time, but right now it seems like it might be trending towards uh, Alabama-Clemson part four uh, in the playoffs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think five years ago, if you looked at the tech schedule and you said they were going to open at Florida State or open at Clemson, you'd say, well, it would rather open at Clemson. But I think Tech not having Clemson on their schedule this year is a is a very good thing. For, for tech. Well, Clemson's won three straight ACC titles, and it doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. I mean, they're they're the by far and away the overwhelming favorite next year. I don't think there's going to be any doubt about that when the ACC kickoff comes around in, in the summer. I think in the past it's sort of been split votes. I think Florida State got the vote last year, uh, which looks ridiculous in hindsight, but nobody nobody knew that Francois was going to get hurt, and they just completely fall apart. Uh, this year, I don't think I'd be curious to see what the outlier votes are this year. If somebody goes with Miami, that, that's maybe the only other team I could see, or maybe maybe like an off the wall pick like NC State or something like that. But it'd be hard to go against Clemson this year with all the talent that that team has coming back. Yeah. Well, one more NFL note: uh, Mel Kiper Jr. has a mock draft out. Uh, he has Tremaine Evans uh, pretty high on there, doesn't he? Twelfth to the Bengals which I, I guess I wouldn't wish uh, Tremaine – I wouldn't want him to go to the Bengals. Just how sorry that franchise <laughs> has been over the years. But uh, that's a pretty high projection. And, you know, Kuiper has tweeted – or mentioned this before in his articles. He says Edmonds has the most upside of any linebacker in the class. Now he has Rokon Smith going two picks before him to the Raiders. Uh, I think there's obviously a reason why Tremaine went pro. I mean, you're 6'5", 250 guy who's really rangy. He can play – he can probably play inside or outside linebacker, depending on how the, the 
NFL team wants to use him within their scheme. Uh, he's really young still, so he's he's got time to develop. Uh, I just think you put all those things together, and you know he's going to be a, a good character guy just based on the Edmonds family and. You know, that you go to the combine, you do all these interviews. I don't think anybody's going to come away not impressed with him in that situation. So uh, it'll be interesting. Sometimes you see some of these early projections. I remember last year, it's like, oh, Bucky Hodges could be the first tight end off the board. Then he ends up going in the sixth round. I I don't think that's going to be the case with Tremaine. I don't think there are too many question marks about uh, his performance on the field, except maybe experience, just because he's only had two years as a starter. He is really young. Uh, but beyond that, it's like, you know, where where's his weakness playing? You know, it, it, there's not really much on a football field that he's been asked to do that he can't do. So uh, I think this is probably a pretty safe bet to be the Hokies' first first-round pick since uh, I think it was Kyle Fuller was the last one to go in the first round. So it'll be interesting to watch. What the heck happened with Bucky? I mean, I know this time last year we were talking about how he has all the measurables they could want. He seemed like a can't-miss guy to latch on somewhere and, and do something. Uh, just did, didn't fit anywhere. What happened with him? Well, I think the question with him was always whether he was a true tight end. Uh, you know, he played receiver his last year at Virginia Tech, and and most of the year before that, he wasn't really a hand on the ground tight end guy. I don't think he was ever all too into blocking, which is what you have to do in the NFL. I think a lot of, you know, the NFL is sort of a cookie cutter league where they have basically sort of one offense that everybody runs and nobody really gets too creative. It's like, oh, we're going to have an H back. And he's, you know, the Redskins do a little bit of that stuff with Jordan Reed, but that's sort of the exception to the rule. I think all these NFL teams think about protection with their tight ends. Yeah, if you can go out and catch a pass, that's pretty nice. But the, you know, the Gronks, the the uh, Jimmy Grahams, uh, Jordan Reeds, those sort of pass-catching type guys are sort of few and far between in the NFL. And those are exceptional athletes that can do a lot of different stuff. I, I just think that Bucky didn't quite have that skill set. Maybe that's why it's been tough for him to latch on somewhere. Uh, I, I'm kind of surprised, though. I thought that Hey, you can teach these guys how to do some of this right. stuff. You can teach them how to block uh, if he well, hasn't Graham done it that much before. Player. Right, exactly. I mean, it, it, isn't that sort of part of the, the NFL is to, to teach these guys? And perhaps that's sort of what last year was for Bucky. It was a learning year uh, to figure some of this stuff out. And, and perhaps he catches on uh, somewhere else and blossoms further down his career. But, yeah, I was a little surprised by that, that he hasn't been able to, to sort of catch on somewhere. Interesting looking at uh, Kuyper's draft, mock draft that you have up there. He has uh, Baker Mayfield going to the skins at 13. I, do you think he'll last that long, Baker Mayfield? I mean, it seems like people would want to grab him. I mean, Well, there's a lot of quarterbacks at the top of this list, and the, fun, the funny part is Kuyper projects Josh Allen, the Wyoming quarterback, to go to the Browns, which to me is just the most Browns pick to do. They're like Sam uh, – I'm blanking on his name here. Uh, Sam – No, it's uh, Sam Darnold from USC is out there. Josh Rosen from UCLA is out there. And you think of those guys as you know sort of glamour quarterbacks at these prestige programs. And then there's the Wyoming quarterback that's out there that – yeah, he's he's got a big strong arm and he's six five or whatever he is and he had a really sort of mediocre uh junior season last year. Uh, I think it was junior season, maybe it was yeah. a senior year. Uh you know, it's just like that seems like a very Browns thing to do is to pick the guy that's not the most obvious pick and then he goes there and he's just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like the Browns have two of the top four or five picks here. They pick first and fourth. And you just know they're going to screw it up, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. they're, they're just going to. Um, this is the team that traded out of the spot that could have taken Carson Wentz. And I guess Carson Wentz was kind of a Josh Allen type, that he was sort of a, a lesser-known guy, not not the big school. So maybe I'm counteracting my own argument there. They traded out of the spot, I think, they could have taken Deshaun Watson or had an opportunity to take Deshaun Watson last year. So, I mean, they have to get a quarterback with one of those top two picks this year. I'm just I'm curious to see how they screw it up. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of those quarterbacks at the top of the list. And then you have guys like Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson who aren't, you know, the six, five pocket passer type guys that the NFL is going to covet. Uh, but I think there's a spot for that. I mean, you know, Baker Mayfield, you look at last week, Drew Brees is not, he's six feet, you know, max he's making plays out there. Lamar Jackson is maybe someone, uh, you wonder if he can make the transition as well. I, I, when I think of him, I sort of think of maybe a little more like Vince Young and how much Vince Young struggled in the NFL. Uh, not really a uh, an accurate passer or a guy that you would expect to be an accurate passer in the NFL. There's sort of a, a checkered history with those kind of guys succeeding at the next level. But 
uh, it is interesting because, you know, there's nobody in college football that was really better than Baker Mayfield last year. Uh, the last two years, nobody's put up numbers like Lamar Jackson. It's always interesting to see how those guys transition to the NFL and if NFL teams can make it work. All right, let's go to our over-unders. This is uh, what we did before the season, and we're going to see how we performed. If you pull up your stats there, I will uh, just start going through them. We had uh, Josh Jackson over-under nine-and-a-half starts. We both went over there. He had, what, 13? He had all of them, right? Started every game. Yeah. And and I think if if even if we put it like a percentage of snaps, like is he going to play 90% of the snaps, he was way over that too. So, yeah, yeah not a doubt there. You had the – well, we had the leading rusher – Whoever it would be would finish with over uh, or under 750 rushing yards. We both went over. Stupid. I said McLeese would do it. You said either McLeese or McMillan or maybe even Peoples. Uh, none of them got within 200 of that number. 530 for McLeese was the leading rusher, and that's only because he had 128 in the last game. Uh, I think Peoples would have been the leading rusher if he didn't get hurt. Yeah. I think that's a I, – I feel pretty comfortable saying that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think from now on, whenever we do these over-unders, if we're like, oh, is it going to be a, a really big number for the rush, leading rusher, the safe bet is to say under on it because there, there's not been one guy that's going to step up. And I think looking at next year's crew of running backs, I don't really see somebody next year that's so far and away this featured back that they're going to have. Yeah, maybe we should set the over-under next year on carries, like who's going to be the leading just, – just number of carries because there, nobody has more than 124. and That that, that was, was Josh Jackson. That was five games for Frank, you know. <laughs> so um, Leading running back carry total last year was McLeese, who had 108. And yeah. he only got there because McMillan decided to transfer before the last game and had 104. Right. right. And that, that's not – I mean – Two years ago, McMillan had 200 carries, I think. So you're talking about half the workload. I, th I think when you look at it in that perspective, you can kind of understand why McMillan would choose to transfer for a senior season. Yeah, and it's taken you and I two years to figure out that this is. Uh, I thought seven. I thought 700 was a low enough number. It's not like we put in a thousand. Like, oh, they're gonna have a thousand yard back. 700 is a pretty attainable number uh, if there's any sort of consistent carries there. But there just hasn't been consistent carries. So we'll be wary of that in future over unders, I guess. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter was my secretary when we were going through here, so I was driving, so she was writing this down. T. Inden, uh, 120 tackles. I believe that's Tremaine Edmonds, 120 tackles over-under. Uh, you went under. I was completely on the Tremaine bandwagon. I went over. How did we do there? He had 109. Yeah, That's pretty still good. pretty good. If they've gotten to the uh, ACC title game, maybe. Maybe. They got that extra game in there. 11 is still a lot to get in a game. It just... Let me let me call up the ACC tackle total here. One person. Wait, that's AAC. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. This is a live podcast here. You know what made me sad? As I three was guys. Three guys got to 120 tackles last Probably year. Probably all from BC. Well, right? no, it was, Kai, it was two from Virginia, Kaiser and Blanding, right. and then you had Joe Giles Harris of Duke who had 125. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Tremaine had as good a year as any of those guys for sure. And it just yeah, – it is one of those things. You you said it when we were going through them. You said that's a, it's a ridiculous amount of tackles. He'd be a first-team consensus All-American uh, all if he got that. And he, he fell just short of it, but still had a fantastic season. Uh, Virginia Tech interceptions over under 16 and a half. Uh, we both went under on that. 13 was the total. Okay. 16 and a half is a big number. Yeah. I mean, that puts you up among the national leaders. And like we said, it's sort of – it's kind of fluky interceptions. I mean, occasionally you get a bunch in in uh, in bunches, but uh, a lot of times you just don't get them. And I, I feel like – it's not like they had a bad pass defense this year. They had a really, really good pass defense, but I don't think that necessarily correlates the number of interceptions you had. In terms of uh, getting to 16 and a half, uh, it looks like – 18 teams had 17 or more interceptions this year. So that's pretty elite company to get above that number. Okay. Phillips, Cam Phillips, over under 1,000 yards. I went over. We were sitting pretty here, I think, uh, early on, and he didn't get there, did he? This one is – I feel bad about winning this one. <laughs> he finished with 964 yards, and you go – well, he sat out the bowl game because he right. had sports hernia surgery. He's going to get 36 receiving yards in that game. 
Uh, so this is one where I would be like, oh, man, I'm really sorry, but I'd like to cash this winning chip at the, <laughs> this winning ticket at the counter, please. Where's my money? You win. You win. Uh, second, we, we, well, we both lost this next one. The second leading wide receiver over under 600 yards, and you had gone back through some of those previous years where three or four guys were getting 600-plus yards, and so we both decided we would go over there. Didn't happen. Nobody even got 500. Yeah, this was uh, – I remember when, when Phillips, it was announced he was out for the bowl game. I think it was Zach Mariner who does research stuff for ESPN, and he tweeted out sort of how big of a disparity between the leading receiver and the next leading receivers in the team was. And it's really as, as big of a gulf as there's been at Virginia Tech since – I think there was one year with Ernest Wilford where he was just far and away the leading receiver, and then the next two were down at like 300 yards or something like that. So this is a little unique that you know Cam Phillips is so far and away ahead of the group. I, I think Eric Kuma could have been that guy the way he was coming on. He really didn't do much the first five or six games of the season um, as you maybe expect for a guy who's a first-time contributor, real contributor like that, that he was. Sean's have always started hot and then sort of faded down the stretch and have much of a role at all uh, in the bowl game. He missed the Virginia game with an injury. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, not necessarily a potent group for these uh, secondary receivers behind Cam Phillips. So, yeah, we both got that one wrong. All right, next one was – and you you admitted when we did this that you, your arithmetic was a little bad and you wished you hadn't set it so high, but you ended up taking the over anyway because you'd already taken it. Uh, but we said over-under for a number of offensive linemen that would log at least one start. We set that at eight. Um, and I don't know if that's right or not. Do you know if that's right or not? Uh, I think it was the under. Yeah, I, think I had the, the under. The only position that had anybody that was starting that was different – well, I actually I take I think it was seven people that started total, because Nijman got hurt and you had Parker Osterloh who started at left tackle, and I think that was the only I think that was the only spot that had somebody different because Kyle Chung started from the the get go and he did not give up that starting spot. Faf was at right guard, uh, Gallo and Teller at, at center and left guard. That left tackle spot was the only one that had any kind of. Uh, turnover, and I don't believe DeAndre Planton started any of the games. I'd, I'd have to go back and check that. I think it was Parker Osterloh uh, when Nijman got hurt. So I think it's only six guys uh, that started games on the offensive line. Okay, so I had the under there. You had the over. Uh, that's one in my column. Uh, scoring defense, 21.5 points a game. Oh, they were way under that. Yeah, I uh, went under. You went over. You said that was, uh, that, that was one of my worst picks of the, the whole thing. I mean, they finished, I think it was 13. Let me call it up here. Dead air. Let's see. <laughs> Dead air. Fourteen point eight points per game, uh, fourth nationally. So I was way off on that one. That was a that was an incredible job by that defense, especially when you look at the, the you know we mentioned it earlier the kind of losses they had personnel wise. It seems like they just kept plugging guys in and having answers. And you know even though they gave up thirty points to Oklahoma State at the end of the year, that was still the second fewest points I think that Oklahoma State had scored all season. So. Yeah, they gave up a lot of yards in that game, but not that many points. They gave the team a chance to win. That was a very good defense that they had. Definitely. Scoring offense uh, over under 33.33.5 points a game. Excuse me. Uh, I went under. You went under. How did we do? The number is 28.2. Okay, we both hit that one. Early in the season, that looked like a stupid – I mean, they were scoring 64 against East Carolina. They had 59 against North Carolina, and then they just sort of hit the wall once they started playing some actual good teams uh, at the end of the year. I think both of us sort of saw that coming. Uh, I probably would have gone over if somebody gave me 29 points, but they they go to 28.2. That was a pretty big step back uh, scoring average-wise, but that's still sort of what you would expect when you had so many young guys on that offense. And the last one was regular season wins. We set it at eight and a half. Uh, that was a little less than what Vegas had it. They had it at nine. We both actually went under there. We both thought eight and four for this squad. So uh, we lost. Well, I think if we had known how bad some of that schedule was, I think I was looking at Duke as being sort of that swing game, and I thought Duke would be a little bit more competitive than it was there. And it, Duke eventually did become competitive uh, down the stretch. I think they beat Wake Forest, won a bowl game. Uh, got to a bowl game in the first place, which I, I thought was uh, impressive uh, to do on their part. Uh, so maybe that was the game I was looking at that I thought would be a little more competitive. I mean, to tell you how close that was, I mean, they're a Pittsburgh goal line stand away from, you know, they four stops from the one yard line from us winning that bet. So right. 
uh, very tight uh, in that sense on, on that particular number, but I, I'd probably make that that uh, bet again with the under. Well, we both finished five and five on our over unders, which tells us two things: one, not a great job by us; two, our over under setting was a pretty good job. We did a pretty good job setting tough over unders for ourselves there, because you don't want to set it where you know we're going ten and zero, because then, then what fun is that? So basically, the only reason that we tied this year was because Cam Phillips got injured before the bowl game. Yeah, I got the the cheap win on that one. Otherwise, he would have taken me six to four to four to six. That's exactly right. So I'm going to count that as a win. I will not <laughs> let the record show. You can you can bring the ticket up and say, but Cam Phillips shouldn't have gotten hurt, and they'd say, sorry, sir. Get out of the way. We're going to pay the real winner who's standing behind you. And then there's me holding the ticket that says, give me my money. Well, I'm the one who always says you got to factor in injuries, you know, when I'm, when we're doing those. So uh, I guess that's, you know, uh, it serves me right. What do you have to right. pick to actually make money with the, the – uh, About 52.8% or something like that. With the – what is it called? The the juice. The juice. The, the, the vigor, vig. The, the vig. That's what it is. So it's, it's how many again? Uh it's like 52.8 or something like okay, that. Okay, so we both lost money with the VIG this year. We lost a little, yeah. We lost fictional money. We lost Bitcoin uh, in this particular gambling transaction. I wish there was, you know, I wish there was a casino that actually posted Virginia Tech over-unders. And we could actually, because when we set them, it also, you know, or, you know, if listeners set them or something, you know, where we were actually, um, we had an edge because we know, you know, but we're setting them in a place that, you know, we're trying to get equal action on both sides. You know, we're, we're setting them to make them difficult for ourselves. Maybe next year before we actually do the podcast, we'll think it out a bit more than 10 minutes before the podcast. <laughs> and, no, at, and, and no, but after that, not only that, how about we put it on Twitter to a Twitter poll to see what the public actually thinks about this. And then we could sort of get a consensus idea of what people think about the season. Uh, and then we could come back and revisit it after the year and see, you know, everybody else can share. Yeah. The, everybody else can share in the embarrassment that we do in getting some of these picks wrong. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Uh, this is not to say that every time we only plan these podcasts five minutes beforehand. <laughs> it's often only 30 seconds before we sit down and start recording. Uh, that's usually the norm. That's usually how we do our best work. Uh, touch on basketball real quick. Uh, Virginia Tech lost at Louisville. Uh, I was there for that game with Mr. Berman. And they were really sloppy. They had 19 turnovers. That's been a bugaboo for this team uh, all season long. Buzz has said it over and over. He says, look, when we get a shot, uh, we're good. When we don't, we're not. They turned it over, by his estimation, 25% of their possessions. Now, he includes, uh, like, getting blocked shots, you know, when you put yourself in bad position in the lane as a, as a live ball turnover, things like that. But, you know, to turn it over a quarter of the time, not get a legitimate shot, uh, it's, it's problematic for Tech. They can still shoot the ball very well. Uh, I think they have a must-win game on Saturday against uh, against Florida State. I'll be there for that. It's a noon game. Um, they they need this one. Uh, they really need this one. To be a tournament team here, don't they pretty much just have to hold serve at home? I don't know about that, man. Is it more than that? They, they, they go... do not have any signature wins. None. I mean, they don't have anything right now that, that stands out to you as, <clears throat> wow, look at that. That's a resume builder. I mean, they that's all going to have to What's the best with... one? So is it – uh, is it that Iowa win or Ole Miss? I mean, the best, the best game might be a loss. You know, the Kentucky, the at Kentucky. You know, being Kentucky's in that game. not quite Kentucky. This They're year. not quite Kentucky, but that you know, that's still just still rough arena. You know, like right. you look at that score and you say, okay, well, they, this team is okay. You know, this team's pretty good. I mean, Pittsburgh's nothing, a nothing win. Uh, Wake is a. Uh, you know, whatever kind of win. One step above nothing win. It's still a road win. <laughs> yeah. that, that's impressive. But yeah, Wake has been not a good team. I mean, they, they're gonna need they're gonna need one of these. You know, the Carolina game. They're gonna need to pull an upset somewhere at Virginia or something like that. And it's they're all looking like tough. Uh, yeah, but so I mean, this Florida State. I mean, they were in the rankings earlier in the year. I'm pretty sure about that. But uh, they're out of it now. But that's still a, be their best win of the season if they can get it. Florida State on Saturday, North Carolina on Monday. Both yeah, at home. That's quite a three-day uh, uh, schedule there. I mean, that, that, that's huge. I mean, they you know, they got to win at least one of those, but you know, winning both of them would certainly get them back on track. I think in terms of being a, a tournament team, I, I I think I saw some projection out there that had them as you know among the first eight teams that were out, which maybe feels about right for how they've played this year. 
Uh, again, you know a lot more about the team. You've covered them a couple times uh, than I do, but there's certainly an opportunity here. I mean, I was looking at the schedule, Fifteen, number 15, North Carolina, 25, Miami down the road. You play at Virginia again, which I mean, it can't go much worse than the first game for them. Uh, you get number five Duke twice. You get Miami again at the end of the season. Louisville at home. Clemson, uh, at, home. Clemson at home. Clemson's a ranked team right now. Um, there's a lot of opportunities on the schedule to build a resume. Uh, it's, I guess it's just a question of whether they can get over the hump and win some of those games. Yeah, the sky is not falling. I mean, that's that'd be. It's way too early to say that. We're still in mid-January, but uh, <laughs> one thing that I've noticed is just Buzz seems to be a little. You know, he he always seems like the most confident person in the world. Uh, this year, he seemed to me to to be at a little bit of a loss as to what to do uh, with some of this stuff. I mean, he that Virginia, he kind of just against that Virginia game when they got crushed at home, he was just kind of standing there with his hands on his hips watching it. You know, he didn't have, you know, the fire. And I asked him about that afterwards, and he says, he says, look, he says, that's just not the best way to approach these guys, this particular group. And, and the, the reason behind that is, you know, they're veterans. I mean, they're, they're, these guards are – um, you know, guys that have played a while, Kerry Blackshear Jr. is a, a good post player. He's he's really emerged this season. Um, they have some pieces. They can do it. But uh, after the Louisville game, you know, he, I asked him about the turnovers, and he says, look, I, I've just got to do a better job. I don't know. You know, I don't know why we're doing this over and over again. Um, so we'll see if they can improve. Because if they can improve this weekend, things look a lot different. Um, and, it, you know, even if you lose against North Carolina on Monday – um, if you can beat Florida State, I think you feel a lot better about your position. That Blackshear development is is huge for them. Yeah. I mean, they have a 6'10 guy. I mean, that's been the story of Virginia Tech the last couple of years. They have no size. There's nobody in the in the middle that can really command a presence, and he can be that guy. I think, I think he's, what do you have, 31 against Pitt yeah. a couple games ago. Had a big game uh, last time out for them at Louisville as well. Uh, if you have that, and then those guards come along, and you can do all sorts of stuff with the, the number of perimeter players that you have, but you have to have somebody on the inside that can be like that. So that's why I think there's maybe the potential there for this team to turn it around a little bit. But uh, again, I'm, I'm admittedly coming off of very little knowledge and, and insight. Uh, and, you know, I don't cover the team, so I'm just kind of watching on TV like everybody else. Yeah, I talked to point guard Justin Robinson after that game, and he's really frustrated with himself right now. You know, he's had too many turnovers, and he's not that kind of player. You know, he was he was so good last year, and uh, he's sort of in a little bit of a slump in terms of the ball handling. And so he needs to get on track. But you're right. Blackshear's a, a big factor, especially in this in the ACC where everybody has big guys. I mean, uh, as Buzz said, whenever we play teams that are long, which is basically every team except us, <laughs> we have to do X, Y, and Z. And, um, you know, they just – so far they've been very consistent in that. Isn't that Florida State's whole MO? They're just like a team of six, eight, six eight guys yep. that have like 12-foot arms. I mean, that, that just seems to That's, me what they were Louisville was the same way. Yeah. I mean, they were the same way. Um, okay, let's let's get out of here with our uh, NFL predictions. Uh, I think we'll start with the the undercard uh, in terms of, in, in your mind, I'm sure, which would be uh, Jacksonville at New England. The line eight and a half. That's come down a little bit from I think it opened at nine and a half at a lot of shops. And I'm on the I'm on the Jacksonville bandwagon here. The whole defense travels mentality. I like those. Excuse me. I like those linebackers. Maybe one of them can stay with Gronk. I think Gronk. You know what? I think Gronk is the MVP of that team. Everybody talks about Brady and how great he is, but you watch the team when they don't have Gronk. I mean, he's a totally different quarterback. It's sort of like what we talked about with the Hokies throwing up those 50-50 balls last year. I'm going to say the five-time Super Bowl champion quarterback and two-time MVP, possibly three-time this year. Is uh, the MVP of the team. I, th- I, think he, <laughs> I think he's the more valuable of the two players. On the team. Gronk is a huge piece, no doubt, and that offense is different, especially you know, they lose Edelman before the season. Uh, you know, He was a, sort of the possession guy that they've always had. I don't think they quite have the receivers that they've had uh, in recent years. I'm going to take the Patriots with that line. Like I know, I know it's a big line, but man, I mean, you know, last week was a big line against Jacksonville. I just, is Blake Bortles going to go into New England and win a game? No, you wouldn't think so. I mean, yeah, he did last week against Pittsburgh. Uh, he had a lot of help, uh, the defensive touchdowns that they scored in that game. Uh, you know, I don't think Pittsburgh's defense has been the same since Ryan Shazier, uh, you know, he had his scary injury that he had. Was that at Cincinnati that he had? Whatever it was, it didn't seem like that defense was the same uh, without him. I, I just think, you know, if, 
if I'm going to look at the game planning situation, I think Bill Belichick's going to be able to come up with something that's going to confuse Blake Bortles. <laughs> and Blake Bortles has not been asked to win a playoff game at this point. He's played well in a couple of games, but he's never been in a situation where, oh, they're down, you know, 10 to nothing or 14 to nothing. And I think that could be the case. And when that's the case, I'm going to go with the team that's been to, you know, eight Super Bowls or whatever, <laughs> whatever the number is. I, I just like the Patriots to win it rather easily, I think. Well, I did have Jacksonville on the money line last week, which was about a three, three and a half to one uh, payoff there. So that was, that lessened the blow of them not kicking the extra point in that. And that's why I don't take the favorites most of the time. Cause things like that extra point thing happen. It's how about like, how badly Pittsburgh screwed up? Like the very end, they threw a touchdown pass on the final play of the game. Yeah. It's like, you have to give yourself a chance there. If you're down 10, like kick the field goal and then hope you get like, you have to get a field goal and an onside kick and a touchdown. Like, right. You have to leave yourself some time. That was just – it seemed like really bad uh, clock management with that. And then also they had like – they went for the onside kick when it, they had like three – two or three timeouts and the two-minute warning. Uh, I would have just kicked it deep. I mean you have time. You have timeouts. You're going against Blake Bortles again. It seems like they just sort of conceded that game with some curious coaching decisions at the end. Then we've got the Andy Bitter Bowl, the NFC title game. I know that people don't think there's a lot of juice around this game. I'm looking forward to this one a lot. I think it's because it's Nick Foles against Case Keenum. Who cares? I mean, there's more than one player on the The Jeff field. Fisher Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I know the quarterback's important, but Gronk is the MVP of <laughs> New England, and these defenses are the MVP of these other teams. Um, Minnesota's giving three on the road. I'll let you go first, and then I'll give you my pick. Well, of course I'm going to pick the Vikings here. <laughs> like, even if I didn't think they were going to win, I would just pick them out of irrational confidence in this game. I think they're the better team. I mean, obviously yeah. they're favored on the road. Uh, I think there's some people that have some hesitation. Oh, they're going to go outside and play in cold weather in Philadelphia. They played in, like, zero-degree weather at Green Bay and, and won that game pretty easily. Now, I know Green Bay stinks. Uh, so that was not, like, the most impressive win. But I, I just – you know, it's not like the, the Vikings are this – you know, what they've been in the past where it's like Randy Moss and this offense up and down the field, throwing the ball. I mean, they are a grinded out offense and a really solid defense. I think that's the sort of team that's built for a cold weather environment like that. So I, I don't think the weather is really a big deal. I think when it comes down to matchups, I think the defense uh, can rattle Nick Foles. I think Nick Foles is certainly rattleable. And, and I don't think he had a great game against uh, Atlanta. Did enough to win. Uh, Atlanta probably should have won that game, and I, I kind of wish that they did so that they were coming to uh, Minnesota to play, and then the Vikings could just sort of hit a checklist of teams that have knocked them out of the playoffs in, heart, <laughs> in heartbreaking fashion uh, over time. But, uh, yeah, I, this is dangerous as a Vikings fan, like I said, to be uh, confident going into a game of this magnitude. But I feel like the Vikings are the better team in this one. So I, I'm going to pick them to cover that. You know, usually when Philly's playing at home, I like to bet against Philly, especially when they're favored because – uh, the first three and out, that place starts booing, and it only gets louder. And it they don't a, have they have a tortured history it too. A de- it becomes a detriment to the home team. I think you were talking about uh, Minnesota playing with house money earlier. I think Philly's the same way this year. I think that crowd's going to be completely behind them. I don't think there's going to be any of that that uh, you know turning on the home team that we see often there. So I'm going to take the points because I'm a points guy, and I think this could be an ugly, muddled affair that uh, you know could could end with you know, some late field goal or late field goal miss. And there's still time for Minnesota to, to don't re- you, reestablish Don't you put itself. that on me. Don't <laughs> you put that black magic on me. I don't want to hear that. What, what, so who do you think's winning the game? I, I prefer Minnesota to win, but I'm going to I'm gonna bet with my head and not with my heart. So I'm going to take the three. Okay, I know what you're taking gambling-wise, but who do you think's going to win the game? Philly. I'm going to go with Philly. I'm going to go with Philly. Uh, I don't even know you. <laughs> forget about it. That's, I, that's New York, I guess. You're dead to me. You're <laughs> dead to me until next week when the Vikings lose in heartbreaking fashion. You can just be like, I told you so. And I'll be like, I hate you, Aaron. <laughs> uh, I will not do that. I promise you. I promise I will uh, stay quiet on that day. All right. Well, that'll just about do it for today. Uh, thank you for joining us again. And we'll get together again as soon as we have enough to talk about. And Andy's also uh, working some some angles on getting some some fresh Uh, voices on the podcast so look for that as well for andy bitter this is aaron mcfarling we will see you next time